Well, good morning. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. If you're joining us online this morning, I'm glad that you're joining us this morning. We are working through the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, you want to follow along. We're going to be in Hebrews 2 if you got it on your phone or paper one. If not, everything's going to be on this screen, which is reminding us that if you don't know, every spring we celebrate this holiday we call Easter. And uh, it's coming up April 9th. It should be pretty easy for you to remember when we're having services because they're the exact same time as every week, 9 and 11. And if you're joining us online, it'll be live online at 11. We'd love for you to invite some friends, some family to come as we celebrate. Uh, We also want to encourage you, uh, Good Friday. We're going to have a Good Friday service. We've been doing this for eight years now. We gather together with a bunch of the other churches in the community. And uh, this year, we're going to be hosting it here on Good Friday, Friday at 7 p.m., and so we'd love for you to join us. It's, it's um, a very different type of service, a lot of scripture reading and singing and prayer to kind of prepare our hearts for this weekend that we're going into um, that is of the utmost importance to us. And then also, the next day is our community-wide Easter icon, and uh, we're going to be doing it at Main Street Park, and uh, we need to collect... 10,000 pieces of individually wrapped candy to fill Easter eggs. And so if you want to donate some, you can bring it by the office anytime. You can just have Amazon send it here. Um, there's some boxes by the front door, and, uh, and you, can, you can do that. I, I will caution you that they have to fit in Easter eggs, okay, in little Easter eggs. So um, don't buy full-size Reese's peanut butter cups or the people packing them will curse your name for all eternity. So just buy small stuff that'll fit in, and that'll be great. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews. Before we look at Hebrews, let me tell you a story, a fable, um, an old fable that I, that I heard years ago. It goes like this. There's a, far, there's, a, there's a man, he lives out in the country, and he has horses. And uh, one of his horses, while they're training the horse, one of the horses breaks free, and it runs off into the woods, And his neighbors see him the next day in town, and they say to him, they say, oh, man, we heard the bad news. So sorry. And he says, good news, bad news. Sometimes it's just a matter of perspective, right? Like, okay, they they all go. A couple days later, they wake up, and they go out, and they hear a bunch of noise and commotion, and it turns out this one horse that had run away came back with several other wild horses with them. And they captured these wild horses, and, and the neighbors heard about this, and they're like, that's amazing! What good news that is! And the farmer says to him, he says, good news, bad news. Sometimes it's just a matter of perspective. A couple days later, they're out training. They're working on breaking these wild horses, right? They're very valuable horses, um, and uh, they're, they're working on breaking these horses. And in the process, his son breaks his leg. The son breaks his leg, and the, the neighbors hear about this, and they come over to him, and they say, oh, man, we're so sorry. He's an older guy. His son does most of the hard labor for him. He's, we're so sorry. We heard about the bad news. And he, and he says, um, good news bad news. Sometimes it's just a matter of perspective. A couple days later, their nation uh, goes to war. And the army comes through these villages to enlist, to force enlist all the able-bodied men of fighting age. And they come to his house to collect his son to take him off to war. And they find him all bound up in this cast from this broken leg. And they allow him to stay. Good news, bad news, sometimes 
It's just a matter of perspective. Today, we're going to look at a passage where the writer of Hebrews is trying to challenge us. Um, Maybe challenge isn't the right word. The, The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage us. He's trying to encourage us to see things from a different perspective. So to do that, we're going to move back a little bit. We're going to start in verse 7. We looked at uh, verse 7 last week, but we're going to set the scene a little bit. Verse 7 says this, right? It says this. It's talking about Jesus. It's this from Psalm 8. It's this big, glorious, triumphant declaration, and it says this. You, being, you have crowned him, being Jesus, with glory and honor. You have put everything in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. That's a big claim. That's a grand declaration that everything, that there's nothing that is not in subjection, that's not under the foot of Jesus, that he's sovereign and powerful over everything. But the writer of Hebrews knows something. Look, look at what he says next. Look at what he says next. He knows something. He says this. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. You have to remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a very tired, beat-up group of people. He's writing to followers of Jesus who've been abandoned by their faith tradition of Judaism. They've been abandoned by their countrymen as they've pursued this monotheistic religion of this one rabbi named Jesus. They've been persecuted. They've been rejected. Some of them have been jailed and even killed. And they're tired and they're weary. And he comes in and he makes this huge declaration. Everything, even Rome, sits under the foot of Jesus. And the world they look around at doesn't look like that. And the writer of Hebrews, it's, it's, it's almost like he's, he's writing this big, great uh, book. He's, he's giving this great big speech, and he pauses, and he, and he like breaks the fourth wall. You, you know when they do this like in movies or TVs? One of the modern sitcoms that really repopularized this was, was The Office, right? And, and they're doing all this acting stuff, and then they would stop, and they would turn and look right at the camera, Right, and they say something to the camera. They're, they're not supposed to know that you're watching them, but they would turn and they would look right into the camera. Right? It's like the writer of Hebrews is, is, is reciting all these great promises and great declarations of Jesus, and then he pauses and he goes, but, but I know you don't see it yet. I know you don't see it yet. Every couple of years, we get to go on vacation to Lake Shasta. If you've been around here before, I've told you about it before. We've talked about it. But it's changed since we've started, since we've had kids, right? Because it's a long drive to Shasta. Have you driven to Shasta? It's a long drive to Lake Shasta, right? You got to drive up through the pass. If you're towing, it's even slower. Um, California has this wonderful law that if you're towing, you're automatically a semi, so you're doing 55 miles an hour on the freeway while everybody else is doing 75, Right? So it's a long drive. And kids do what kids do. Right? Almost as soon as you get to, into the car, the kids will say, are we, are we there yet? Right? <laughs> are we there yet? And my wife will testify. You can, you can ask her. My wife will testify. Um, this very quickly became my answer. Are we there yet? Yes. Get out. <laughs> right? I'm like, uh, uh, but daddy, we're driving. Well, then quit asking. If we're still driving, we're not there yet. Right? But my kids are smart, so they start asking a different question. They start asking this question. 
How much longer? How much longer? How many more minutes? How many more seconds? How much longer? Right? So I started saying this to them. I said, the lake is on the other side of the mountain. Right? If you've driven to Lake Shasta, you, right, you drive through the Ashland Pass, you get, you get down towards Weed and, and Northern California, and then all of a sudden, Mount Shasta explodes out in the horizon. And Lake Shasta's on the other side of the mountain. I tell them, when we get to the other side of that mountain, the, pr- the problem is, um, when you're in Medford, you can't see the mountain. Right? When I tell them, when we're driving along the road, and, and they say, Daddy, how much further? How much further? How much longer until we get there? And I say, it's on the other side of the mountain. And they say, oh, those hills right there? No, 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 not the hills. On the other side of the mountain. Their inability to see the mountain doesn't mean that the road doesn't lead to the mountain. The writer of Hebrews, he's saying, I, I know you can't see it yet. I know you can't see the mountain yet. I know it's too far down the road, but it doesn't change the fact that if you stick on I-5 for long enough, you will get to Lake Shasta. You will get to the mountain. You will get to the other side of the mountain. And our inability to see the mountain doesn't make it any less there. In fact, our inability to see the mountain is what defines what faith is. This faith journey, this thing that we call, we call our faith, is defined by our inability to see it and yet to believe that it's still there. The writer of Hebrews, he says this in Hebrews 11. You've been around church for a while. You know this passage. It says this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see about what we don't see. Our faith is a journey of pursuing and trusting and believing things we can't yet see. Sometimes our ability to see those things take weeks or months or decades or a lifetime. There are things that are true that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne room of God, that God will wipe away every single tear, that everything is submission to him. And we may not see it this side of the grave. The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage his people, his audience, his church to say, hey, just because you can't see it, in fact, one of the hardest things about our faith is that this is the way God so often works. He calls us to trust and believe in a thing we can't yet see. There's a story in Joshua, right? Um, to, to get you up to date, the people of Israel have been enslaved in, in Egypt. God sends the plagues. They get delivered. They, they go through the Red Sea. They end up out in the wilderness. God says, I'm going to take you into the promised land. I'm going to take you to this land. I'm going to give you this land. I've already given you this land, right? And the people are like, oh, no, it's terrifying over there. And they choose to not live in faith, trusting and believing that what God has said, that the mountain is there, even though they can't see it. And so they rebel and they say, we're not going. And God says, sure, you can 
die in the wilderness, but there's another generation that comes, a generation of faith, a generation that is defined by believing the words that God says even when they don't see them. And look at what he says to Joshua. He's gonna go, they're going to go to war. Their first battle, they're going to go to war in Jericho. And look, look at what he says. This is the tension. If we, if we could define one of the reasons it's so hard to follow Jesus, I think it's summed up in this right here. It says, God spoke to Joshua. I've already given Jericho to you. I've already done it. It's finished. It's accomplished. It's complete. Right? The problem is, you know what Jericho saw? I mean, what Joshua saw? He saw a fortified, hardened city and a bunch of former slaves that had never gone to war before. He saw a city that that was a fortress of a city, and behind him are a bunch of people who have no training and no experience in going to war. And God says, I've already given you Jericho. And then you know what he tells them to do? He tells them to go through the rituals and the practices to prepare themselves for war. To walk out in faith, believing and trusting the words of God that I have already accomplished it, even though you can't yet see it. God does this all the time. God does, this is like how God works in so many different ways. You, you know the story of Abraham? Right? God, God says to Abraham, I'm, I'm going to make you as many as the sand in the seas, uh, on the seashore, and as many as the stars in the sky. You're going to be a great nation, and I'm going to bless every nation in all the world through you. And I'm going to give you a son. You know how many years Abraham had to wait for his son? You know how many years he had to walk in faith and trust and believe that the words of God were true, that he was going to make him a great nation. In fact, when he changes Abraham's name, you know what Abraham's name means? It means the father of many. He had to walk with a name as the father of many without a son. You know how many years? 25 years he walked with that name without a single son. Now just perspective, like let's do some math. 25 years, 25 years from now would be 2048. How strenuous would it be? How hard would it be to walk in faith carrying a name of a reality that is not yet true in the world we see for 25 years trusting that the words of God are true and that what he has declared has already been accomplished even when we can't yet see it. Joseph you know how many years Joseph had to wait between his dream and when he actually saw it fulfilled? 22 years and a lot of really horrible detail, detours. 22 years. David, right? Samuel comes to David's dad and he says, hey, one of your sons is going to be king of Israel. I, I need to find him. And David's dad's like, oh, yeah, he is. Here, let me show you who it is. Right? And he brings trumpet out, his oldest son, and he goes, look, this is my son. He's going to be the king. And Samuel says, no, no, that's not him. And he goes through all the list until David's dad has basically forgotten that David even exists. It's like, oh, yeah, I had this one other son. Yeah, he's, he's out there. He's, he, he's not worth anything. And he brings him, and, and, and Samuel anoints David as the king of Israel, as the king of God's chosen people, as the king of, of the, the, the people to which God will bless all people. He, he, he anoints him with oil. You know how many years he has to wait before he becomes king? 15 years. Not 15 weeks. Not until next year. 
Not 15 months, 15 years. Israel. You know how long Israel had to wait from the promise of God that he would give them the promised land until they walked in that land with Joshua? 470 years the people lived in faith. God said it's going to happen. He said he's going to give us that land. He promised it to our forefathers. He said he's going to give us that land. He's going to give us that place. He's going to bless us. He's going to bless us so that we can be a blessing to the world. He's going to 470 years. How many generations were born and died? Born and died. Declaring in faith the same promise that God had said all the while. Themselves never seeing it this side of the grave. 470 years. Years, God asked his people to walk in faith and to trust him that even if they couldn't see it, to listen to the words he had to say and the promises he had to make to them. You know, another one I was thinking of this week um, was Mary. I mean, we don't know a lot about Mary before the angel shows up. It just seems like the angel shows up to her. She's like 13 or 14 years old. Think of yourself at 13 or 14 years old, Right? She's 13 or 14 years old, and an angel shows up, and he says, hey, guess what? You're going to have a baby. I know you're not married. It's going to come from God. It's going to be miraculous. It's going to be amazing, and, and, and they're going to call him Emmanuel. He's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and she gives birth to a baby, rejected and isolated from her family in a community. Look, we see, we see this. We know this later from the Gospels. In a community that knew that Jesus was not the son of Joseph. A teenage girl with an illegitimate child rejected by her family and her community. For two years she held that baby. Before, before God was kind enough to send some wise men from the east who came and celebrated the king of kings and the lord of lords. The king of Israel who's been born. But it was from that point another 31 years she had to wait to see the words that had been promised to her. 31 years she had to wait on her child. 31 years. One of the really hard things about this life is that so often the words God declares to us do not line up with the things we see in this world. We see brokenness and decay. We see anger and we see hatred. We feel in ourselves addiction and bitterness and hatred and despair. And God calls us to be faithful even when we can't see the mountain to trust and know that if we keep our feet on this path, Paul says at this rate, he, he encourages us, he says, he says, run the race with perseverance. Stick to it, stay committed Stay committed. I remember um, hearing a story about a news reporter, early 90s or late 80s, and she was uh, assigned to the White House, and a press secretary was there, and, and, and she said, hey, we're going to run a story. I'd really like to get some B-roll that we can run with the story of the president. Could you send us some B-roll for, for our story? And the press secretary says, yeah, sure. We'll, we, you know, we got these packs, these media kits. We'll send it over to you. So she sends it over to her. And a couple days later, the press secretary sees this reporter, and they run it on like the nightly news on uh, national news. And, and uh, the press secretary comes up to the reporter, and she says, she shakes her hand and says, oh, thank you for running that that." That story the other night. And the news reporter's a little confused because she says, um, <laughs> but it, it wasn't positive. 
And she goes, I know, I know, but all the, new, all the video footage we sent you was, and in the battle between the eyes and the ears, the eyes always win. That's why it's so hard so often to keep enduring in faith. Because we hear over and over again that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that he's seated in power and glory, that he's sovereign and that everything is under his foot and that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The revelation says he's going to wipe away every tear and we hear these things over and over again. But when we look to the world that we see so often, it doesn't look like the world we've been told of. And in the battle between the eyes... And the heirs, the eyes often win, which is why the writer of Hebrews says this. Look, look at what he says, right? He says, I know you haven't seen it yet. I know you haven't seen Jesus in glory. I know you haven't seen him seated at the right hand of the throne. Of I know you haven't seen everything in submission to him. I know you haven't seen everything made right and good and perfect and everything brought together. But, but look, look, this is what he says to him. He says, this is what you have seen. But we do see. But what we do see is him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. What we do see is Jesus. So many times in this world that things don't look like we think they should. Things don't feel like Jesus is sovereign and in control over everything. And the writer of Hebrews knows that. He's writing to a bunch of people who some of them will end up as martyrs. He's writing to a bunch of people who's lost their jobs and lost their homes because of their faith, who've been beaten and jailed because of their faith. They know that it doesn't look or feel like Jesus is sovereign over everything. He says to them, in the midst of all the brokenness of the world, when we can't see Jesus seated at the throne room of God, we can see something. What we can see is the moment that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death. What we can see is the cross. Romans, in Romans, Paul writes and he says, um, he says, he who gave his own son for you, what more will he not give? He who gave his own son for you. When, when everything in the world seems to be falling apart in chaos and brokenness and it doesn't look like you think it should, when your kids are still wandering, when your marriage is falling apart, when, when relationships and families are falling into decay, when, when there's angst and brokenness in you, when there's still this longing of the flesh for addiction and for brokenness and for vengeance and for bitterness, the writer of Hebrews says, Fix your eyes on Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what he says in Hebrews 12 too. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look, look, this is what he says. You've seen it before. We've talked about it. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So what's it mean? It means this. That just because we can't see the mountain doesn't mean it's not there. And in the moments when we can't see the mountain, we remember and we keep our eyes fixed on the signs that continue to pass by us as we drive down the road that say, Lake Shasta, 176 miles. Lake Shasta, 90 miles. That even when we can't see all things in submission to Jesus, we keep our eyes fixed on the cross because it is the permanent 
all eternity declaration of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his power and his love for you. And he who gave his own son, what more will he not do for you? Fix your eyes on Jesus. It means this, practically it means this. When you don't want to sing because you're angry, because you're sad, because you're hurting, you sing anyways. When you don't want to show up in life, in your family, in church, to a Bible study, you show up anyways. You fix your eyes on Jesus. Because in this busted and chaotic world, it's all we have. When, when you don't want to read your Bible, you read it anyways. When you don't want to show up and serve someone, you show up and serve anyways. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Because, remember what the writer of Hebrews says? We haven't yet seen it. One day, one day, we like Joshua will see the walls of Jericho fall. We will see armies flee. We will see God conquer and redeem and restore and bring healing and bring hope and wipe away every tear. And maybe it'll happen in decades, but maybe it won't even happen this side of the grave. But one day, one day we will see what the gospel writers have celebrated for so long, that Jesus sits. You know why he sits? Because he's done. Because there's nothing more for him to do. And so church, may we fix our eyes on Jesus in everything that we do, not be distracted by the fears and the worries and the stories of this world, but fix our eyes on Jesus. There's an old hymn. You probably know it, even if you haven't spent a lot of time in church. It goes like this. It goes, uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Church, I pray that might be us. Each day, each week, turn your eyes on him.